so used to like I say going and buying the solution in a bottle or a bag that, that we've lost a little bit of that intuition perhaps uh, there's so much um, knowledge and understanding and research going on now into, into the relationships within the soil that you're almost bombarded with information on a on a daily basis it's, it's it can get a little overwhelming reducing input costs is a key topic at the moment for many farmers with prices sky high but could adopting more regenerative practices be a solution on this week's Over the Farmgate podcast, we'll be looking to equip you with some of the knowledge you need to enable you to harness nature better on farm. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every week, so make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast platform. Now let's delve into the basics of soil health with Jess Fredenberg. Did you know the School of Sustainable Food and Farming has announced a £50,000 prize pot for farmers who are trying to develop sustainable farming practices? The Journey to Net Zero competition wants to support farmers who are planning to implement a scalable, sustainable farming system or process that will have a positive and measurable impact on how they farm. Grants of between £5,000 and £20,000 are available and you have until the 30th of September to enter online. The competition is being supported by Bradford Estates, Harper Adams University, McDonald's, Morrison's, the NFU, Trinity AgTech and Trinity Global Farm Pioneers. As a founding partner of the SSFF, the National Farmers Union is committed to the vision to educate, inspire and empower current and future farmers to achieve net zero within a sustainable farming and food system. This competition provides an ideal opportunity to promote that vision, encouraging farmer-led innovation for sustainable farming. To find out more and to enter, visit www.fginsight.com forward slash net zero competition. Entries close on September 30th, 2022. Hello everyone, I'm Jez Fredenberg and in today's Regenerative Farming Toolkit, we are getting our proverbial spades out to dig into soils. Coming up, we're talking to Niels Caulfield, an independent advisor and trainer specialising in regenerative agriculture, about how to read your soils and make sense of what weeds are telling you. First, though, we're going to look at the basics of soil health. To do that, I'm joined by Anthony Ellis, an independent agronomist with Southwest Farm Consultants and Groundswell Agronomy, who follows an agroecological approach. Get your notebooks ready because there's a lot of great info to absorb over the next half hour. Anthony, welcome to the Farmer's Garden podcast. You have had a different kind of route into regenerative farming, haven't you? You're a farmer, but you're also an agronomist. And you started out in a much more conventional kind of role, didn't you? Can you you tell us a little bit about that, that shift and what led you to make it? Yeah, so I had a very conventional um, agronomic training background. Um, I, I did my basis crop protection uh, module and all, all the associated modules. Worked for a couple of the big um, agronomy companies and, and really had a very, yeah, a very conventional background. Um, and then in about uh, 2013, 2014, I sort of became a bit disillusioned with the, with the conventional sales agronomy model um found myself selling products that um farmers didn't necessarily want or need um 
just to tick the boxes and get the get your sales up because that's what it's all about it's all about sales and so in 2015 my wife and I made the decision that we were going to we were going to emigrate to Australia and so we um we went and found I found myself uh working for for an agriculture reseller in in the Barossa Valley in um in South Australia and um it was sort of it was there although although that was sort of going back again to a, a reasonably conventional um agronomy model I found myself talking to and interacting with people that were doing things a little bit differently um and it sort of light bulbs started to come on um and um that was that was kind of where it all started really Okay, so let's get into the uh, the nitty-gritty of soil health then. What would you say that people perhaps need to unlearn in terms of soil and relearn? Because, th- you know, this is something that I'm sort of talking to a, talking to a, lo- a lot of people about at the moment um, and a lot, of, a lot of farmers I've spoken to who've gone more down the regenerative route have sort of talked about how they've had this quite formal conventional education and they've actually spent a lot of time since then unlearning it all yeah and I guess we've all you know if if we came for university in the last 30 odd years we've probably all had that same education where we've looked at soil in terms of structure and and chemistry but we haven't really looked at it as a as a biological living breathing thing we we've looked at it as a medium for sticking our seeds in the ground and and holding on to the roots um and then we give the crop everything it needs and we don't necessarily understand or or see the soil as a as this biological entity that can cycle nutrients and and release nutrients to the to the plant in the correct quantities at, at the correct time and and that's something that we um as an industry as a as a people I guess we we still don't fully understand the intricacies of the different relationships that are going on in the soil and and so we're, we're all the time learning but getting away from that mindset that we have to supply everything that the crop needs and and trying to learn about what the soil can do for the crop instead is is the bit that we have to relearn perhaps some of that knowledge anyway has been lost and and we we used to know it we used to understand how soil behaved and soil influenced um, plant health and, and animal health um, but we've got so used to like I say going and buying the solution in a bottle or a bag that, that we've lost a little bit of that intuition perhaps uh, there's so much um, knowledge and understanding and research going on now into into the relationships within the soil that you're almost bombarded with information on a on a daily basis it's it's it can get a little overwhelming but um well, like you say, there's a real intricacy is there, aren't there? And it's very, um, it's a kind of complex, it's an ecosystem in its own right, isn't it? Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Like you just said, it can feel a bit overwhelming and, and that can make you feel like you don't, you kind of can't do anything almost. If, if we go back a few steps and we go, okay, what are the what are the real basics that we need to understand about the biology of soil that we haven't understood before? What are those real basic sort of things? I guess it's it comes down to the relationships between um, the soil and and the plants and animals that depend on that soil, and how how we can influence those relationships in in terms of the the management uh, practices that we that we use. Uh, I always <laughs> always try and say it's it's complex, not complicated. It doesn't need to be complicated. It's it's you know the relationships are. are are very fundamental and basic 
Um, it's it's just how we allow those relationships to flourish um, through our management that that's key. Um, these relationships have have been working quite well for the last four or five million years, probably, and and we've lost that uh, that ability to allow those relationships to do their own thing. I think, and so uh, part of part of going back to basics is is understanding what the soil and the plants and the animals want to do. So the soil wants to be covered. It wants to have growing roots in it. It wants to it wants to have those um, those plants producing. The root exudates which feed the biology in the soil which makes that soil healthy and and, and um, so it's it's allowing the soil to to behave in a natural way is what we're what we're always striving to achieve um, and there are hundreds of different ways of doing that it's just picking out those different practices that suit our system one of the big questions that um i was taught by one of the guys on the farming farming forum actually and it's something that i i constantly ask myself now is is whenever you make a management decision ask yourself is this improving the natural functionality of the soil is what i'm doing allowing the soil to function naturally or is it impeding natural function of the soil and once you're able to ask difficult questions like that and and be honest with yourself in the answers you can start to direct your management in a way that um, allows soil to improve Mm. And I'm I'm guessing, um, like you've just alluded to, it's going to be different on everybody's farm, isn't it? Because yeah. you've got different different ecosystems, different habitats, different soil types, different biology. But are there, are there some sort of real key principles of good soil management when we're talking about regenerating the soil? And like you say, kind of enabling all those natural processes to kind of really happen? Yeah, and I... I mean, from a from a soil's point of view, yeah, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before about allowing the soil to do what it wants to do, and and the so, so soil wants to be covered and it wants to have living roots in it. So that's that's the one key, you know, the first sort of key principle is is to wherever possible in the rotation or in in the system have something growing in the soil, so you, that you're having this constant flow of nutrients and and carbon going into the soil so if you think of soil as a as a cow's rumen if you like because you know the soil biology and everything is is not dissimilar to that the moment you you stop feeding the cow and the cow's rumen the the cow starts to suffer and the soil is exactly the same once you once there's nothing growing in the soil you're starving it you're 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 stopping the the food going in i guess that the starting point and particularly sort of in in arable scenarios where we we sort of get to the end of the season we have this part of the rotation where all of a sudden there's nothing growing is is can we find a slot in there just to get something anything growing to start that to maintain that the, the momentum of that um that soil biology so beyond that then we've got this the idea that we we try and minimize soil disturbance as much as possible that's going to change and be slightly different in how we do that depending on soil type so lighter soils it's easier to leave soils undisturbed and and go down a sort of reduced zero tillage route than it is on heavier soils guys on heavier soils or farmers on heavier soils will, will, will always tell you that it's it's really difficult to go down that route without um, quite a lot of groundwork it's a slower process to get to a point where you can really minimize soil disturbance but there are ways and means of doing it and and um, it's just a, can be a, lo- a longer process so the other thing that we always try and um, encourage is reintroduction of, of, of livestock Soil and animals have evolved over millions of years to work together via via pasture and grass. And so even back in the 1800s, they were writing about the healing power of pasture and grass on, on soils. And so it's not it's it's something that um, if we can shoehorn 
grass into an arable rotation, that has an enormous benefit on soil structure and soil health, just even if it's for 12 months, two years, anything to get grass and livestock back onto that um, onto that ground and cycle those nutrients through an animal because the animal does so much of the work in terms of breaking down plant matter, inoculating, inoculating it with their biology as it passes through them, uh, taking a few of the nutrients with it and making those nutrients available to the soil and to the next crop. So I guess those are the key things if I blathered on a bit too much, but that <laughs> I get a bit carried away. Not at all. It's all really useful stuff. Thank you. Um, and when you when you can unlock that, you know, when you can get to the point where you've got really healthy soil, what's what's the impact on your business? Ultimately, um, we get the soil to work harder for us so that we are less reliant on artificial inputs um, that, as we all know, are, are the price of which is going through the roof at the moment. That's what we're aiming to achieve is is to have a natural functioning healthy soil is able to cycle and provide nutrients so that we ultimately don't have to go and find those solutions in a bottle or a bag um, and that's not in my opinion that that doesn't necessarily happen overnight that's a that's a process it's a slow can be a slow process there are plenty of people that will go cold turkey as they say and and, and stop overnight um i'm not necessarily an advocate of that um i think it's a it's a gradual process to to wean ourselves and our soils off those off those inputs what are the absolute key indicators of a healthy soil so i i guess a healthy soil is um uh we're, we're looking at everything from soil structure chemistry biology organic matter uh, water retention uh, and release nutrient retention and release all those things sort of working together and and the way we sort of get to understand that is by um observing and studying the soil and and going out in the fields with a spade and and digging a hole and, and trying to observe and understand what's going on so there's 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 loads of different tests that we can uh, that we can do or different observations we can make to understand how healthy our soil is the easiest thing to do as a as a starting point is dig a hole and people think I'm slightly bonkers when I go out in, in the field and dig a hole and start smelling the soil but actually that that's one of the best indicators you can have if it if it smells like soil if you get that that um fungally mushroomy sort of smell from the soil that that's a, a good sign that it's a healthy soil if you're getting a a, a funny rancid sulfury smell for it then, then you know there's there's something not quite right so you know at a, at a very basic level that that's a you know that that's your your first indicator but then you can sort of go into a bit, a bit more detail you can you can do your uh, earthworm and insect counts uh, and diversity um, scores you can look at water infiltration you can look at visual evaluation of soil structure which is really important from a, uh, a rooting and cropping perspective one of the really really good ones uh, that i like to use it's a really good visual um test is aggregate stability in water or, or, or a slake test so that's looking at the soil's ability to hold on to itself and to stick together so when when we get a, a heavy rain event and we see all the, the streams and rivers turning brown that's soil slaking that's um the soil aggregates breaking down in the presence of water and washing off the field so um in order to get a good slake score you kind of have to have all these natural biological processes working you need to have your your 
natural glues, your glomalins from fungi, your polysaccharides from bacteria, organic matter, your slimes from your worms. All of these things need to be working together to hold this all together. And so once you get some of these processes that aren't working, that's when we start to see um, soil disappearing down uh, down our, our watercourses. So uh, in terms of um, how valuable these different tests are for measuring soil uh, soil health, that's one of the one of the key ones because everything needs to be working to get a good score. Um, but there, yeah, there there are there are loads of other um, different observations we can make. Rooting depth, um, we can look at uh, nodules on legumes. Are they are they big and pink and healthy, or are they small and and they're not very many of them? All of these things sort of feed into that story, and it's kind of important to not look at any one soil health test in isolation it's it's important to get uh, to get a range of tests and, and and look at them all as as one as one thing so so if someone was was really kind of wanting to begin understanding their soil better and kind of starting from the beginning of that would there be key things that you would suggest that they do and that they look at okay so so gathering if, if you're just starting out and you're gathering your sort of your baseline metrics if you like you're looking at um looking at your starting point so the key ones to my mind would be soil structure so that will be visual evaluation of soil structure um again your slate test your aggregate stability in water i would be looking at depth of your topsoil and and in your rooting depth and how deep your roots are getting uh, I would be looking at compaction. So if you want to go down the route of getting a penetrometer or whether it's just a case of how easy does your spade slide into the soil or your fencing stake slide into the soil. Um, infiltration rate of water is a really good one because that allows us to understand where the water is going. Is it washed? Is it simply running off um, the tops of your soil and taking soil with it? Or is it is your soil able to take that water in and hold it? So those are the sort of, those are the sort of key ones that I'd, I'd want to see. Um, Earthworm counts, a lot of people say that earthworm counts are really important. They are important. We know that more earthworms equals better, but earthworms are a really difficult um, metric to pin soil health on because they're they're relatively big creatures. They move around. Um, if it's hot and dry, they'll go down deep. If it's um, if it's wet, they'll come to the surface and get eaten. So, you know, you can, you can dig a hole and find... 23 earthworms over here and a meter away you won't find any so it's it's um earthworms make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside but as a as a baseline metric they're not necessarily the best thing to use um but again it, it's good to know that they're about and and that over time numbers are increasing um so those are sort of the the, the key ones and, and like i say there, there are loads of other ones you can you can look at your you can take your soil samples and send them off to a lab you can understand your ph or you can you know you can you can do that yourselves with a good old-fashioned bdh kit but uh, looking at um organic matter and, and percentage organic matter and is that increasing or is it decreasing over time so um it's it's important to get those baseline measurements um it's important to review those measurements every year every two years whatever whatever suits um it's important to do them at the same time of year each year so it's consistent and then just look at them uh, look at them as a as a group of of um of metrics and and try to understand the direction of travel and is it getting better or is it getting worse and if it's not going where you want it to go why let's let's start to understand why it's changing in the way it is and and make management decisions based on those how quickly could farmers expect to see 
an improvement. You know, if they're taking a soil sample on their, their baseline year, perhaps, and um, they've maybe up until now, they've been doing very conventional um, kind of cropping system. You know, how long would it take to sort of start seeing some improvement if they introduce everything you just talked about? Soil scientists and, and, and people always caveat every single question with it depends, which it kind of does. Every, every farm is going to be slightly different. I mean, we when we changed over here, when we changed from the power, power, harrow drill to strip tillage, we noticed the improvement in soil structure within 12 months. It was chalk and cheese and we were because we made that change um over three years the last year that we um had one field that we plow power harrowed we we noticed that um the field right next door which was strip tilled retained moisture in the spring it it was trafficable in the winter it drained it, it did all the things that we were wanting it to do whereas the plow power harrowed field right next door sat like a quagmire over the winter and baked like concrete in the summer and so you know if you just just at a very basic level those that sort of thing that we noticed really really quickly here was stark um but you know again it it depends on on what changes are made and and the speed of that that transition i'm always hesitant to say that you know we're not going to work wonders in 12 months it's a you know it's a three to five year change it doesn't matter what what sort of um, system you're coming from or going to it's a it's a gradual process so I, I you know I'm, I'm not suggesting that within 12 months we're all going to be heroes but it's worth sticking with it and, and just understanding that these things are a, a gradual process but the the benefits will come yeah I mean especially if you're when you're talking about the experience you had you know like a uh, you know otherwise it was like a, a quagmire in winter and it's said really, you know, absolutely baked in the summer. I mean, this is this is what climate change is increasingly going to deliver to us: wetter, warmer winters and drier, hotter summers. And it's it's yeah. all about creating soils that are going to be able to cope with that, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it's it's all about it's all about creating resilient systems. We are going to start to see these um, hotter, drier summers coming. Then, then we want a system that does retain moisture in the soil for longer into that into that dry spell to to keep crops growing and, and we've certainly uh we've certainly noticed that in our system the benefits are there if you want to s- stick with it and keep at it it's um it's the way to go i think thanks to anthony ellis for all his insights now earlier i spoke with niels caulfield an independent advisor and trainer specializing in regenerative farming and i started off by asking him how to read your soils the first thing to do is get your spade out. I think that's the most important thing. Take a sort of careful spade sample from from the soil where the, where that's practical. You know, kind of lift out sort of uh, a kind of cube of soil, sort of remove any spade marks and place that on a tray. And then what I like to do from that point basically is to take another sample from a close location to that area of the field that um, has been out of management for a period of, if you like, so it could be a margin, it could be a hedge, or it could be just, or it could just be at the fence line, if you like, on the in, on the inside of the fence. Um, you know, ideally in an area that hasn't been trafficked or it's other in otherwise sort of anomalous. And then you could put those two side by side. You can then sort of look at the sort of internal structures of visually, look at the um, crumb structure that's the sort of primary indicator that we're looking for, whether the soil has a kind of loose structure to it, uh, sort of open and loose. You know, if you sort of 
handle the soil you know if you sort of press on the soil gently does it sort of give or is it just a sort of a kind of fairly sort of solid block um and that's where sort of like the sort of hedge and you know the margins normally sort of in, il- illustrate what uh, an aggregated soil will look like or rather i should say what your particular soil type or that particular soil type in that field will look like basically um you can then compare the the color as well one side by side if the soil is a sort of browner uh, or sort of darker, generally you would kind of infer from that that there's a higher carbon content, for example. But otherwise, in terms of the structure itself, if the structure of the soil, for example, if you sort of break it up very gently or, you know, just look, visually inspect the, um, certainly the lower sections of the soil, uh, you know, are we seeing sort of angular or blocky structures, um, places where we're seeing things like sort of angular, sorry, shear faces, uh, or smooth surfaces, for example, all of that is indicative of a lack of aggregate structure. Effectively, what that's showing is, is the soil is compacted. But you know, fundamentally, that sort of indicates whether the soil has good gas exchange or sort of aeration. Um, and we need good gas exchange basically to uh, allow the organisms and the plant roots to breathe. And we also need the gas exchange to get sort of nitrogen down into the soil to allow sort of nitrogen fixers to actually. Fix some, fix some nitrogen, basically. But it also indicates whether we have good sort of water use efficiency or not, and whether the, soil, the water is sort of penetrating into the soil or whether it's just running off, basically. And we can kind of sort of cross-reference that directly by just doing sort of infiltration rate tests, again, in the field and sort of at the hedge. So infiltration rate tests are actually quite simple. They're quite straightforward. Um, they're done with sort of basically steel tubes, Again, we can use that as a proxy for aggregate structure because it's the sort of loose and open structure that comes from crumb, crumb structure and aggregate structure that allows water penetration, basically. Uh, and I sort of identify how much of the available rain resource we're actually capitalizing on. And my experience is pretty much across the board, soils that are under management are not capitalizing on those rain resources. And that's now going to be sort of like hampering production the weather conditions that we're having now basically so so really you mean by by using that benchmark then like you say um soil that is out of production and comparing it to the soil that is in production that's very near to it do you mean you're 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 basically sort of looking at what your soil that's in production could be like is that what you're essentially is that what it's doing Yes, and that in, in, it eliminates any of those sort of soil type factors and it highlights management uh, factors. So again, we choose a location that's, you know, within you know, 20, 30 metres, for example, on a similar level, for example. So we're looking at effectively the same parent material, you know, the same underlying soil type, basically, uh, but different management. You know, so if you're thinking, oh, I haven't got a good infiltration rate because I'm on heavy soil, for example, you know, we can just do this side by side comparison and, and say and eliminate those those um, soil type factors, basically. And the experience is that even on heavy soils, for example, you know, where we have sort of very slow infiltration rate, they can take many, many hours in the open field. You know, when you go to the margin, the hedge or even just the fence line, for example, we can see that same like a full inch of water infiltrating in minutes or even seconds. Um, and again, you know. Same parent material, same rainfall, same climate, same altitude. Um, what's different is the is the management basically. 
to me, that's a very kind of good news story, basically, because, you know, the one thing that is in our control is management. What's important, first of all, is to have that sort of inquisitional kind of approach, if you like. I think the key understanding for producers to take away at this stage is that observation is the key to understanding the root causes um, of the issues that you're experiencing. For example, these long housing periods, um, late turnouts, you know, mud up to your eyeballs, for example. You know, what's causing those issues? Is it your soil type or is it your management? Nine times out of ten, it's your management, basically. I think the, the initial thing is just to sort of, you know, you know, educate yourself by going and looking at a, you know, a few strategic places on the farm. And, you know, there's a few sort of, you know, simple cues to look at and clues to look for, basically. But, you know, wherever you're seeing standing water, like in midwinter, that's the time to get the spade out and go and look underneath that sort of patch of standing water. So rather than just sort of assuming and accepting, oh, it's saturated, blah, 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 you know, go and look cross-reference that basically rather than it being a sort of predominantly a sort of you know a data gathering exercise it's really as much a learning exercise as it is about sort of gathering you know quantitative data for example the right time to do the test is right now basically it's when you've got a moment it's when you remember it's when you're on a dog walk you know when you're on the track so you just just get off get the spade out it doesn't have to be you don't even have to take the spade out basically but just you know, take a few minutes whenever you can. And once you get into that habit and that once that information, you, you're leaning some useful information, if you like, then you start to get into it and then start to delve deeper. You, you know, you start to ask questions, if you like. You know, you ask that why, you know, why is that an issue? Can we just look at weeds specifically? What can weeds tell you? You know, what can they tell you about the soil underneath? And can you give some examples? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think I think the first thing to say about weeds is that we want to look at them or interpret them as indicator plants. They're telling us things about the underlying condition of the soil and where they're sort of well represented and they've been there for a period of time. They normally tell us about what what are the end results or what are the impacts of management practices. You know, obviously the sort of caveat there is, is you know, if we're talking about just like a couple of weeds here or there, you know, no big deal if you like. But the example I like to sort of use to illustrate, you know, sort of around ring feeders, for example, you know, if you left, you know, if the ring feeders get left out for a bit long and it gets wet, you know, through the winter, for example, you know, that following spring, you know, you know what grows around the ring feeder docks. They were in the seed bank, yeah, waiting for the germination signals, waiting for the right germination signals to tell them that right okay this is our our time this is when we can grow and we can be successful basically and in this instance uh, specifically with docks but other other spike rooted broad-leaved ruderal plants as they as they're sort of officially known yeah so they're basically in this case our compaction indicator plants can you give any other examples of um indicator species and what they're indicating others um, sort of weed species that indicate uh, sort of compaction, basically, or lack of soil structure uh, would be mosses um, and creeping buttercups. And again, we think of sort of mosses as being sort of indicative of sort of damp conditions, if you like, waterlogging, etc. Also, 
uh, sort of early succession grasses or kind of low ME grasses like Yorkshire fog, they would also be indicative of poor soil health states. And along with that, also creeping grasses would also be normally indicative of, again, poor soil structure, but otherwise, you know, typically it's thought of as early successional in terms of ecological terms or otherwise bare soil colonizers. Uh, in a grazing context, basically, if you're seeing running grasses like creeping bent, for example, or red fescue, uh, well represented in the sward, and you to identify that, you really got to get down on your hands and knees and sort of pull it apart. Uh, but if you sort of pull it apart and it sort of tufts come away in your hand, basically, we're looking at running grasses because they're very shallow rooted, very superficial. They don't sort of hang on tight, basically. So you end up with these big bare patches. And what they're indicating is you've got a loss in sward density. So bare patches are already sort of opening out in the sward, basically. And it's those low growing, expansive plants that then occupy those niches, basically, because they can only grow into sort of places where there aren't competitive clump forming grasses. Thank you to Anthony, Niels and to Jez. Don't forget to pick up the latest edition of Farmer's Guardian. This week, the pig industry is celebrating a victory as the government announced plans to introduce new border controls to fend off African swine fever. We take a look around the sectors at the implications of a temporary shutdown in ammonia production from CF fertilisers. And as she celebrates her 100th birthday, Olive Clark has told us all about her life in the rural community. That's it for this week's Over the Farmgate podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll be back with another episode next week. Goodbye for now.